Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the podcast. We're so thankful for all of our guests that we've had on these first 10 episodes, as well as to our listeners, that's you, uh, in the last few months as we've launched this new project from Upper House. The Upwards podcast was born out of the realities of COVID and us asking how we can connect with our audience in new ways, but uh, we love this medium and we'll be continuing it far into the future when COVID is just a memory. Well, today I'm especially excited to be introducing both our interviewer and our guest. Neither have been on the podcast before. The interviewer is my colleague at Upper House, Cam Anderson, the Associate Director at Upper House. Hi, Cam. Hi, Dan. So for those listening who don't know you, what do you do here at Upper House as Associate Director? I do a number of things here at Upper House. Uh, my f- first task really is to support John Terrell as executive director, but um, I've been involved in everything from leading learning communities to writers' workshops to um, supplying help on writing grants, um, a whole variety of things here at Upper House. Sort of our jack-of-all-trades and a number of uses of that word, would you say, Cam? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm even called on sometimes to fix things that are broken around here. So That's right. Well, and that actually gets us to um, another part of your life. You are an artist um, and uh, work with uh, tools all the time. Uh, how would you describe yourself as an artist? Well, I describe myself as an artist. And then as the years uh, passed, I've also described myself as a writer as well. So artist and writer. Um, I studied painting and drawing as an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and then went on to complete my MFA at Cranbrook Academy of Art in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. But from the earliest age, really as a boy growing up on the farm, I knew that I loved making things by hand, so I'm a maker of objects. and. Uh, in fact, to that point, I even scored the really nice email address Liminal Maker, which I'm mm-hmm. very proud of. <laughs> what, what year did you score that? <laughs> oh, that was that was probably about six or seven years ago when I was needing a new personal handle. Okay, that's great. Well, that leads us into our guest, uh, the artist, the world-renowned artist, uh, Makoto Fuchimura. Can you give us a brief introduction to Mako and how you know him? I'm not sure when Mako and I met first, but we've known each other for at least two decades or more. And um, because Mako is also an artist and a writer and a Christian, as am I, we found ourselves showing up for the same kinds of conferences and events. Um, Some of them with SIVA, Christians in the visual arts, other things uh, involving his own organization that he founded a bit later called IAM, the International Arts Movement. So we've just been in the same place many, many times and become uh, close friends over the years. Yeah, and this conversation is related to uh, Mako's most recent book, 
Art and Faith by Yale Press. And you read the book, Cam, and it comes up a lot in your conversation. What stood out as memorable or, or yeah, memorable uh, in the book? Well, Mako, when he writes, and this is his fourth or fifth book, um, just often has fresh insights. And I don't say that casually, but he has an ability to think about poetry and about culture, East and West, and theology and film. Um, he just is by nature a very integrated person. Um, and he writes from that perspective. Um, he also, also writes very hopefully, um, and I, I appreciate that about him. Um, I first discovered that about Mako when I read um, some of his essays that he wrote after 9-11, and his family was right next to that terrible disaster in New York City and encountered the trauma firsthand. And um, so the first book I read about him, read by him about that moment was his musings about it and uh, just his capacity to bring meaning to these kinds of cultural moments are, is something I really appreciate. Thanks, Cam. Uh, any reflections on this conversation we're about to hear with Mako? It goes in a lot of uh, different places, very fascinating. Anything the listeners should be aware of uh, just entering the conversation? Well, it was my desire in speaking with Mako to speak to the book that he had written. And so um, we started out there just kind of making our way through chapter by chapter and discussing some of his thinking. Um, but as we continue, the conversation really became a personal conversation between friends, which I don't think surprised us. But um, so the book became the occasion to talk about the book, which is certainly worth reading, um, but it also became a conversation to reflect on our lives as they've unfolded in this art and faith movement as well. Thanks, Cam. Well, this is a reminder uh, every episode to leave us comments at, uh, or send us comments at podcast at slbrownfoundation.org and to share this podcast with friends and family. This might be the perfect episode uh, to do that for. And now uh, we'll head right into an upwards conversation with Cam and Mako Fujimura. So, Mako, it's good to be in a conversation with you today. And as we start, um, I wonder, um, have we ever had a short conversation together? <laughs> Great to be here, Cam. And yeah, I, I don't think so. I think it's always uh, around the fire uh, fireplace and a, a bottle of whiskey or something like that. <laughs> so, I don't know if that should be on the recording or not, but now it is. Well, yeah, probably not. Yeah, well... You know, it's 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 for it's it's for a cat. It's not not for us. That's right. Yeah, but just a delight to have you here today. And uh, congratulations on the recent publication of your book. Thank you. Art and Faith: A Theology of Making. Public. You just published with Yale University Press, and uh, yeah. I finished reading it last week in preparation uh, for today. And. As always, always with you, Mako, I'm drawn into your heart and your mind and your kind of passion for art and the world and the place of art in the world. And um, 
our, the journey with God that we're on. So uh, again, thanks yes. for, for writing this. And uh, because we're both artists and writers, we might go into some territory here that might be a little different than some of the other people that interview you. So that could be fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, you know, I, I think both of our work, uh, we're rowing in the same direction. direction so Right, right. This, 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 will, this will be fun. <laughs> and we have the pleasure of overlapping from time to time, and it's really nice. On page 71, you said this, this book flows out of my daily practice in the studio, reflecting on the Word of God and the knowledge of what I am writing is filtered through the act of making. So my first question is this, can you say more about the place of your studio practice in relation to both your writing and your ongoing role as a leader in the art and faith movement? And, you know, over over all the years that we've known each other, you have said again and again, for me, what I do starts in the studio. So why don't we start in the studio with you and talk about the importance of that? Absolutely. I, um, you know, you're right. I've I've done many things, but if it wasn't for my uh, daily work in the studio, I wouldn't be good at any of them. You know, and uh, even my writing um, literally flows out of my time in the studio. When I was an undergraduate at Bucknell University, I, you know, did my homework <laughs> uh, in the in the art barn <laughs> at studio because. Um, for some reason, when I'm thinking visually or working visually, it helps me to write or to even do biology homework. You know, it, it, it was it was better to do it in the context of my work, uh, my work, uh, visual work. And and so I learned very early on, Cam, that this is all connected. Um, and later on, I, I learned from uh, neuroscientists how these things are indeed connected and and some of us who are wired to think visually you know it doesn't really make sense to be in a context where that, that wasn't connected you know and and so I, I i always think that each one of us have a different way of working or learning and for me it's always been working in my studio every day thinking with my hands and then letting that filter up into more the analytical side, perhaps. But it, it's always, you know, seemed to me that, you know, when, when we are disconnected with, from that, um, you know, for instance, in, in schools or uh, in, in churches, we're, we're not, you know, in a place of making necessarily. So we lose our, some, some, at least my, myself, I, I don't, um, I'm, I'm not fully alive. <laughs> you know, compensating for some lack. So, so that, that's how I always worked. And, you know, people ask me, so what, what, you know, what are you, you know, you, you do art and writing and all that leadership, but um, really to me, it all boils down to being an artist. Right. Right. And, and as you're pointing out, um, when we work with our hands, there's a, it's a different knowledge base, isn't it? Some some people call it haptic learning, right? But actually handling things, material things and properties and moving things around is uh, is uh, gives access to a different kind of knowledge. And, and it, it ties into all the rest, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, um, uh, I'm learning more and more how important that is. And and it used to be, uh, uh, as you might have experienced, Cam, I, I, you know, I would be intentionally 
not talking about these things because I know people don't understand, uh, you know, the somatic knowledge uh, that we have and how important that is or how connected that is to our daily experience. But then I, I realized, well, it, it's not really helpful if I didn't talk about it because there are a lot of people out there who, who have experienced this disconnect and taking in information and not being able to actualize them, you know, in, in our lives. Um, so, so the, you know, the hand knowledge or somatic knowledge goes upward to our analytical side, but it's, it's hard to reverse that, you know? And, and so, um, and, and so more recently I, I realized how important that is. And, and really all, all humans in some way uh, have to, you know, when they're, uh, born, that's how we learn, right? It's, it's by touch and by smell and taste. And and so language formation and analytical thinking comes last. And so if we flip it, you know, perhaps we, you know, we will communicate the gospel better or, you know, we will understand um, what we're trying to learn better. Well, that's right. That's, that's my experience as well. So um, I'd, I'd like to know about know more about your writing practice and I think listeners would be interested in this as well and so first is kind of a kind of a simple question but is writing for you anything like making a painting oh absolutely <laughs> it's, it's almost exactly the same you know writing is I, I find it really really difficult right to write and and I, I've always had this battle with languages because I was brought up in bicultural setting in, in which, you know, I, I couldn't really write in any language, you know, and, and, and then it was, it was my, you know, undergrad education that gave me the discipline to write. And, and I'm so grateful for that because uh, I would not have learned this uh, apart from forcing myself to sit down and write every week. Uh, you know, all, all, I, all I had to do was read a, uh, uh, short story and respond to it with an essay um, but doing it once a week was uh, like excruciatingly difficult and I remember sitting in my professor's office every Thursday and he would help me uh, from the one paragraph that I wrote you know and then eventually that became part of my life and I you know after I graduated I noticed myself still writing and and I was I was I was amazed by that and really my writing career began after 9-11 and in responding to that uh, horrible day and being a ground zero resident <laughs> living three blocks away you know I I, uh, I started to write and uh, our friend Greg Wolf was very instrumental because he saw some of my short essays that I've written and said, you know, Marco, you should, you should really write more. And, uh, and so he, he really helped me to think through some, some of the initial impulses of writing. And, you know, I was traveling a lot, trying to encourage people here in the U S and in Japan. And I, I just developed this discipline writing in the airplane <laughs> because um, I found that if I write even a little bit, I am not as tired when I land. And so this is something I, I kept up and uh, until the, you know, the uh, quarantine shutdown 
you know, that I, I did half my writing uh, on airports and airplanes. <laughs> and, um, and now it's a little different, obviously. But yeah, so I, I, I think it's kind of, if you read my earlier writings, it's, it's very uh, much has that sp- sporadic, um, you know, feel of, of a uh, traveler recording down you know, um, observations, you know, and then I think my, uh, other books like silence and beauty and, and theology making as, as, you know, more of a overall depth to it that, that has takes on a larger theme, but, um, it, it really, um, for me, I, it's, I still find writing enormously difficult, although, you know, I, I enjoy the process, that difficulty and discipline as much as, you know, I do uh, working on a canvas. And, and I think intuitively, it's exactly the same process. You're looking for like precious minerals, uh, you know, in, in terms of words and observations and, and then expanding that and layering them slowly. Right. I was going to say layering. Yeah. Slowly, slowly. And, and letting the work speak to you uh, rather than, you know, you dictating what what you want it to be. I, I love the meandering process. And um, so if, if the writing is going well, you know, by the end of the day, maybe I, I start writing one essay and it becomes 10 essays, you know, <laughs> and, and, and then you have to have the discipline to know like, okay, so I'm going to focus on this one rabbit hole <laughs> at a time. Well, I think, yeah, I think you said on the community forum that this book was three times larger than it actually is now and that your, your others. Yeah. Every conversation, podcast conversation, uh, it just, uh, it just expands and and that's what i love about these communities and conversations is as you as you know you know we sit down and we're just chatting and all of a sudden some some other thread <laughs> comes alive and you know uh, our friend bruce sermon uh, is 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 someone that, that i so love uh journeying with uh, be, because that happens every time you know he's like a walking resource of intuition and knowledge you know so so our fellowship really has a lot to do with this book i'm gonna i'm gonna dive right into um, a paragraph in page 88 um so you're talking here about the theology of making as an essential part of culture care which you wrote about you know in your book before this one and uh you Talk about the obsession that we have, the American obsession we have with the culture war. And I know this book went to press and came back in print before January 6th, right? The riot that occurred in the federal Capitol building. So I'm just going to read this. And it particularly a commentary on our Christian community. It's very arresting. Christians are seen in culture as promoting hatred instead of love, vindictiveness instead of joy vilication instead of peace, alarmism instead of patience, discord instead of kindness, racism instead of goodness, prosperity instead of faithfulness, and the imposition of power instead of self-control. We need only look at ourselves in the mirror to see that our witness has not produced the fruit of the Spirit in the culture at large. 
Instead, we've withdrawn into our fear-filled shells. Now, that paragraph's worth the price of this book, Marco. I know we agree with this, but why is this idea of a culture war such a failed project? I mean, I think we'd say it was it's doomed to failure by design, but just talk for a bit about the failure of the culture war. You know, Culture Care book was written, um, you know, it's a series of essays that I've written in the past uh, decades and more, and that's compiled into a book. And every essay is, uh, was originally given to a larger audience when I was doing the National Council work. And so arts advocacy work at large. So you can't assume that everybody's a Christian. So I translated basically Galatians 5 passages of the fruit of the spirit every every time I talked and I focused on, you know, let's say love or joy or peace or patience, you know, those qualities that we, we want to see. And, and, and interestingly enough, I mean, when you do that, uh, jazz makes sense. You know, modern dance makes sense. And uh, I, of course, you, you don't talk about Galatians 5 when you're <laughs> talking in front of museum audience necessarily, you know, uh, not, not because you're hiding it, but be- because it's, there's no context for it. And so I, as I, I again, I, I will be, you know, coming back on the airplane and I say, well, why did I say what I said? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why am I so passionate about modern, modern dance? And, and why, why is joy so important? to us and and so that's that's how theology of making uh, as a thesis came about you know it's, it's just an undergirding thesis a theological thesis for arts advocacy basically and and then it became more than that but uh, as as you noted that that passage is particularly arresting because um for many years you know i would travel around the country um you know working with Dana Joya, the amazing poet and business leader who put a stop to culture wars at the time in 2003 when he became the uh, chair of National Endowment and did so many good projects, which which are still going on. Uh, what I began to call culture care works, and and at the time, you know, people just assumed that culture wars will just take over, and uh, agencies like NEH or NEA will be gone by the end of Bush administration. And it it, it took an enormous, in, you know, behind the scenes um, battles and diplomacy to not only keep that alive, but but we believe that it can really show how federal government can thrive uh, under my leadership. So under Bruce Cole, NH, NEH, Adair Margo of presidential commissions and uh, Dana, you know, and and few others, it, it just not only turned the climate around of, of, of that time. And of course, you know, the late uh, debacle we have experienced uh, in, in the capital was a result a direct result of cultural wars rhetoric. Uh, words count, words matter. And, and when you, you use words for, uh, you know, power, narcissistic power, uh, in, instead of generous empathy, um, that results in action. And we are, we are you know, uh, you and I are no less vulnerable to this. And and so we have to put ourselves in climates where um, words are spoken um, based on love, based on joy, based on peace, based on patience and kindness. Um, and and you know you would hope that the church would be a 
place <laughs> that happens. But in this case, we have witnessed church doing the opposite. Um, and, and so, you know, and it's easy to criticize that, um, you know, standing on the sidelines. But I, I really think so. Therefore, it, it's not just an issue of, you know, somebody getting conspiracy theories and believing them. It's, it's about the, the theology not being you know, as a whole, you know, so, so my, my, my observation is, is a severe indictment on all of these, you know, individualistic programs, the good programs, by the way, that we have all experienced in parachurches and churches, we, we have done our best, we talk about Galatians 5, you know, and, and apply that to our individual lives. Uh, and yet, it, the fact that it hasn't borne any fruit, is an indictment on us um, that we failed largely, uh, and there are notable exceptions, you know. And and when we saw, uh, you know, twenty-two year old stand up in inauguration, and and begin to articulate from her point of view, Amanda Goldman's poetry captured the the fruit, you know. To me, um, I, I responded to that as as a kind of an antidote to years of words being misused and, you know, used, used as weapons. Um, and here's a little poet, you know, <laughs> speaking so broadly and so truthfully, uh, expanding our vision. And, and so that, that kind of opens our hearts to the possibility of this being not just a theological principle, perhaps, but, but an, you know, aesthetic, artistic, uh, civic uh, position. You know, words when carefully brought out in uh, lovingly and, and joyfully, it makes a huge difference, you know, and right. Well, and you've sort of, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how should artists respond to the culture war, but you've just given me what I think is the most brilliant example we've seen in, in recent weeks. Right. And yeah, talking about Galatians five, you know, it, it's all about this virtue that we're supposed to put on. And, and yet here we had, yes, this young um, poet, Remind us again what this virtue is, and and deliver it to us in poetic form. It it was it, it was a stunning moment. It's it, it's a moment I won't and it, and it made me think. Well, maybe we actually can still talk about virtue in the public square. Maybe we really long for this. Yeah, you know, because we used to joke about Dana and I, you know, and us, us at, uh, you know, National Endowment. Like they used to fill the Wembley Stadium with T.S. Eliot, you know, <laughs> like T.S. Eliot would speak, you know, thousands of people show up and we will lament, right? Is there a poet that can do that today? Maybe Billy Collins, you know. And and then Amanda Gorman comes and she can literally fill the giant stadium today. You know, she, <laughs> we, we, we could uh, safely gather. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, wow. You know, it, it, and, and maybe this is also a lesson in, waiting for God is, is to, to be patient with ourselves. Um, you know, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, you know, this, this, this idea of culture wars to, to use whatever means to wrestle, you know, the, demonize the other side and win at all costs is, is so damaging to your own ideology. It really is. Yeah. 
because it, it just is not attractive and winsome. And, you know, I may not agree with, you know, the, the, the political stance of many of our poet friends or jazz friends, you know, but, but, you know, it doesn't really matter because you see the fruit of their labor and the fruit is, is love. Um, and and for artists, I think that's probably the most important question we can ask is what we are creating. Is that based on love or is that based on narcissistic self-interest? And, you know, if, if, and if it is ego, you know, driven, then, you know, we have, we have to, we have to say that that work is going to be limited by that because it, it would not produce generative fruit in culture long term you may, you may have find success but it's not going to create um, a movement um, of, of of love that we need in culture um, and uh, you know the the just the, just the difference um, between uh, you know a, a work of art that is filled with transgression and in 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 a violent sense and and even though you know uh, you and i understand how important uh, even that voice is um you know compared to (laughs) just uh being silent or something that's banal right yeah something that's banal right 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 something that's sentimentalized or you know, something that's transactional, purely transactional, you know, that, that, that only, it, it doesn't last. We, we, we know it, we know that from examples of even our lifetime. Um, so, so, you know, I, I really hope that we have really been awakened and seen the results of words being misused as opposed to words being, you know, spoken so powerfully and lovingly into culture. I want to keep talking about culture, um, but shift it a little bit, probably a couple times here. But, um, you know, it's my sense that you're really an excellent exegete of culture. And I, I, I think, Marco, that's been aided a great deal by your bicultural training, upbringing experience, studying in the West, but also studying in the East and um, traveling comfortably, comfortably between those two cultures, navigating that space. I wonder, kind of in general, how has belonging to these two worlds shaped your work, especially your thinking, you know, as an artist, a writer, and as a leader? And um, do those, does East and West or uh, these two cultures, do they exist for you um, as polarities or as kind of a synthesis or just talk to us about it because I I think it's one of the really unique um, and I don't use the word unique very often, right. But actually unique parts of the voice and perspective you bring. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. gives me object objectivity to look at both cultures actually, because I, I, I'm, uh, you know, in a sense alienated from both, right. (laughs) You know, because I don't fit, um, yeah, that that's the price. But you know, I I I I um I'm grateful for that. And uh, not only that, to have a father who is a renowned scientist is another thing. You know, because you you you're also speaking about scientific, you know, way of thinking and and artistic way of thinking. And 
um, so so you don't fit in there either, you know. And uh, um, I I I feel like I I've learned to navigate as as I as I write about being a border stalker or mayor stopper as Bruce calls, you know taught taught us. Which I I like that image so much, by the way. It came out of our conversation, really. I mean, uh, stalking the borders and. And not journeying there alone, but journeying with with sojourning with friends. And Jesus was a border stalker. He he did not, um, you know, he definitely, you know, checked in with his tribe, uh, and and yet he took the sheep outside the gates, you know. So it it really makes sense for us as followers of Jesus to meander and and explore and and bring back what what we find and and that if you're bicultural or multicultural you know is what you're doing uh, you're forced to do and uh, you know i don't i don't know if it's just east west i i used to think that was a broad category that was helpful in some way but you know today i wonder if if our children, uh, you know, Generation Z and beyond, are more Japanese in their thinking, they are, they are Western, you know, and and the Japanese youth are more Western in their thinking than they're Japanese. You know, there are these particularities that are interesting too, right? Be- between Japan, Korea, China, you know, between Hong Kong and Taiwan, you know, so so they're they're really beautiful things that can happen if we can. Uh, learn to uh, accept the differences and uh, you know the specific particularities and and learn to journey in between them as well and the observations that we can make uh, I, I, you know I, I, I'm hoping that the new generation of uh, you know upcoming grandkids really can navigate that better uh, not to assimilate but but to honor the differences and i even i almost hesitated asking the question in terms of east and west right because it's so broad to say is there even such a thing right but there are traditions and what are we actually talking about when we say east or west and talk about an individual experiencing those things but but still i you know i think there's a richness to what you offer us and i just to go down a layer or two, you know, I've known your work, to, especially, you know, over the longer time to uh, be characterized um, by the practice of Nihanga, you know, the pulverizing of these minerals and, and the many dozens, even a hundred or more layers on handmade paper. And every time I read you or hear you read you uh, writing about these things or um, here you're talking about it. it makes me want to go in the studio just because the material sounds so wonderful. That's good. <laughs> but then I think, and then and your book Refractions, of course, wrote about this in great detail. And I think that was the book you were referring to earlier that Greg encouraged you to write. And and I read that. I, I was going to sit down and just kind of plow through it. This is I'm kind of going backwards here a bit, but I was just so caught up in your post 9/11 experience. I. I actually took some weeks to read it, Marco, kind of devotionally. I took a chapter a day, and it was it was my quiet moment to enter the day. So I process. I became familiar with your process of working. So in this book, though, in Art and Faith, you write a lot in here about kintsugi, and so another ancient Asian, Japanese, Korean. I think uh, you can locate that for me, but uh, vision. But in this case. 
not all the layering um, and the free flow of these precious materials, but the repair of precious things, things, especially ceramic items that are of great value, but are fractured, broken. And so less about prismatic refractions here and about repair and restoration, which it seems to me is what the book is so much about. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, perhaps larger fragments, you know, larger prisms. Uh, you know, uh, it's amazing how Japanese tradition, especially the aesthetics of tea, high tea that Senoriku uh, really uh, invented or, or uh, you know, brought into focus in 16th century and then Oribe and others in uh, later generations. And Kintsugi definitely flows out of that tradition. We're not quite sure who you know, invented it. There are many anecdotal anecdotal stories, but it, it probably began in China, Korea, uh, uh, and and then Japan. And the Japanese uh, lacquer mm-hmm. masters, uh, Japan lacquer masters, uh, refined this technique uh, to mend broken fragments, uh, especially some uh, some bowl that was used in high tea ceremony that families or tea masters. Uh, because of Japan's many earthquakes, you know, uh, would will, will break and and they will hold on to the fragments for many generations, passing down the trauma as it were, and and then giving it to Japan lacquer master to mend, uh, and not only to mend but to make new uh, with gold, um, accentuating the fractures, and then so the resulting bowl is m- more valuable than when it began uh, because the care of preserving and generationally stewarding uh, the gift of that story um, becomes something entirely new and made alive uh, in the art of Kintsugi. So I, I write about that in, in, in um, this book because it, it's such a beautiful metaphor for new creation. And Jesus's wounds after the resurrection, uh, it's still visible. And, you know, Thomas um, is invited to touch them. He doesn't, he worships. Uh, but um, so that, that to me is a significant theological detail um, when we think about what happens after Easter you know, Pentecost, Ascension, what happens? What, what are we be supposed to be doing? You know, and we have fought our culture wars uh, thinking that's the, that's, the, that's the way to, you know, preserve or protect. I think we're missing a point here. You know, I, I think Jesus, uh, resurrected Christ, is the presence of that body, you know, as, as anti-rights, many writings on the theology of resurrection and, new creation attests to, you know, is, is the entry point. Um, you know, God, uh, you know, Jesus does, does not disappear into thin air. You know, Jesus has a body post-resurrection and chooses to be human forever. I mean, that, that, that just blows your mind. It is. If, if you weren't already stunned by the fact that God took on human flesh to come and be with us, God with us, right? Right. Then realizing he's actually keeping the flesh, right? He wants to be with us in, in both suffering and in joy. And he's present at the Eucharist table, every, you know, every week for those churches that celebrate that weekly. And, 
you know, manifestation of the spirit in in a material body is is fundamentally what what the resurrection is all about. So we don't, you know, we don't believe in Jesus, accept Jesus, and and just go to heaven. You know, heaven comes down to us. To me, one of the missing links is. You know, um, my mentor, Tim Keller, used to preach that, you know, uh, if you have invited Jesus into your heart, that, that is that is a good start. But have you invited Jesus as your creator? <laughs> and as a human God, you know, God, um, God, man, who continues to hold on to the wounds, not because of the pain and suffering, but but because of the joy that is that is designed for all of us to walk into. I mean, what a promise that is. And what a promise that is to an artist who works with our hands, you know, works with our bodies. Well, this metaphor, um, yeah, it's just about, it's nearly perfect, isn't it? And so yeah, imagine our maker picking us up as the broken pieces, but then then there's all this attentiveness that's required, right? This attention to this particular vessel and to each of the cracks and crevices or seams and, and attention to how they're going to be repaired. And I, and I know you also showed, uh, showed a vessel on screen with us, you know, at the Trinity Forum. And not just the repair of that crack, but then the added embellishment of the artist alongside the crack so that, um, so it's value upon value, and um, if, it seems to me if there's ever a time in the church when we needed a new picture of what gospel work is, it, it's this. I'm, and I can only speak for myself to say, please come and repair my cracks, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've been doing this Kintsugi Academy. I, I've been working with a Kintsugi master in Tokyo to create this kit um, that's authentic, but um, easier to do than Japan lacquer. Japan lacquer is notoriously difficult. Uh, it's made from poison sumac. So, you know, uh, one third of the population is highly allergic. Um, so, we, we, you know, we didn't want to promote that. So we came up with uh, lacquer uh, based on cashew nuts um, that's suspended. So, um, you know, it's safe. And um, we we have been we created kind of a DIY kit because we couldn't do workshops. Um, uh, and, you know, when you get one of these kits, you can you can get it now on Shopify. But when you get it, you know, people, the number one question we get is like, well, I don't have anything broken, you know, in my, in my house. And I say, okay, I used to say that, <laughs> you know, I, I used to say that, no, I don't, you know, because we, we are consumer culture. So we th- throw things out. And now that I've been doing this for a while, Cam, I, you know, I, I, I've been like, it's amazing. Like I, I find broken things everywhere. Like, <laughs> like it's everywhere, <laughs> but we have like learned not to see them. And, um, and, and once you start to open your eyes to the brokenness all around us, including our neighbors, uh, our own lives, you know, we, we, we get to 
named that. Um, and, and part of Kintsugi, art of Kintsugi is, is looking at the fractures, you know, for a long time and, and, and then meditating on it and saying, well, what's the uniqueness of this particular fracture? You know, what's the story behind this uh, ceramic or uh, coffee mug or whatever? And what, what is it telling me about myself? You know, and, and at that point, you know, your hands while, while, you know, you're working to mend becomes part of this antennae to um, seek out what the spirit is trying to do in us. Uh, in culture at large, us individually, uh, families. And, and it, it's just amazing how we get sensitized to slow down you know, begin to name those things that we have ignored, uh, you know, and wanted to wanted to um, not pay attention to because they are painful and it's so convenient to ignore them. Yeah, exactly, and that's how we are trained, and yeah, uh, and so art fundamentally is 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 a healing process that brings us back to looking at really just using our eyes, but, you know, like learning to recover that attentiveness. And I think it's tied in with prayer because, you know, as Simone Weil said, you know, uh, absolute unmixed attention uh, is prayer. Um, and Kintsugi is a process, I think, when, when, when once you kind of begin to think this way, it it just opens you up to all sorts of things, and and this time of shutdown, I you know since I've been I was fortunate that you know we had set this up before the shutdown, so we had all these materials that you know we had that we have been um, collecting uh, to do Kintsugi Academy in person, but we couldn't do it in person, so we started to do it remotely just training the leaders because I, I you know it, it's not just about kintsugi but it's about culture care uh, it's about what you know you've done in the past with uh, siva and other organizations it's really about caring for culture right we want to create communities that care for culture uh, locally and you know I, I i felt like kintsugi academy can can really help um, in that sense, and and it it really is amazing. You know, um, I'm I'm just getting feedback from people who order these kits, you know, and they 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 have you know Instagram, <laughs> you know, like like uh, feast Instagram fellowship, you know, and and it, it it's amazing. I mean, there are lawyers, there are children, there are people who keep sending me images, and and it's really gratifying actually to to see that. Good. On page uh, 102, you start, you, you talk very openly about, you know, being someone who's experienced considerable trauma yourself. And, you know, I know over the years we've talked about 9-11 many times, and that's been a stimulus for your thinking and your making. And, you know, at, at some point, even your movement from the city to Princeton to start your studio up there and, and, and I know, get back to the studio in a way and get back to first thing. On page 76, though, you, um, I think that chapter is entitled See Beyond. And you write, you write really tenderly about the loss of your mom and um, what you can tell when you read is just a hard season of life. And you're 
thinking about how to finish this painting. And, um, and then you come out at a certain point uh, as you're describing that, and, and we'd love to hear whatever you want to say about this, but an artist's intuition taps into new creation in this way. An artist simply being honest to the sense of the world can tap into future realities. And at that point, you know, you're on the ocean shoreline there and realizing that if you look across, you're looking across to a, a, a place where your mother nurtured you, right? Yes, yes. It's so powerful in a way. I'm not sure how you were able to write about it, let alone talk about it now. But um, Yeah, you know, I, in a sense, writing about it really helped because, you know, as you know, we're intuitive creatures and we're, we've learned to trust that, right, as artists and, and just dive in not knowing where the current's going to take you. And, you know, it's, it's just so strange to me and, and wonderful to me that we don't know what we're doing, you know. <laughs> and uh, um, when we, when I, I, I was painting a series of triptychs, huge uh, monumental paintings, 33 feet long and uh, kind of auto style mode with the middle panel raised. Um, and I was calling it Sea Beyond because it's just painted with one material, oyster shell, white, um, which is rather difficult material to use. To me, one of the most profound, beautiful uh, materials in the world. And so it has this luminosity and opacity at the same time and gestures kind of disappear, almost like magic ink. You know, you, you don't you you do a layer and it just kind of disappears and then it appears later on, you know. And and so every gesture counts and I'm doing these huge paintings and uh, as you noted, I was going through just just deep, deep darkness, not just loss of my mother, but loss really of my marriage, loss of my father, all that in span of two years. And and it, it, it just... And and I I remember going into the studio and painting, but I I don't remember what I did. You know, many of the paintings I did at the time, it was just my body. You know, through years of practice, um, just following through um, what I what I know. And then when I heard my mom's passing, it was pretty sudden. She had dementia for ten years, so. It felt like every time I saw her, I was saying goodbye to her. But, you know, it, she was doing fairly well physically and and God just took her one night and my brother called and I was in Newport Beach in California, this beautiful um, ocean there. Um, and my daughter uh, lived there at the time. So I was there and, and look, looking over the ocean with, you know, these dolphins would be you know, jumping in and out in, in the mornings. And and I, I just asked myself, well, what is sea beyond? <laughs> you know, like, um, and I looked. What is this thing that I've been working on? Yeah, what is this thing that I've been looking, you know, working on? Exactly. Like, I never asked that question. Like, you know, what, what am I painting here? And I looked on Google map and lo and behold, it, it, where I was standing, where I was looking at, pointed directly at Kamakura, Japan, where, I grew up and that that if there was one single memory of my mom that I treasure, it would be in Kamakura. So I went to Japan and I did the reverse, you know, I intentionally this time. Yeah, I went to Japan and I went to Kamakura. I stood on the beach and uh, I painted another monumental painting um, 
same size. Um, uh, called See Beyond from Kamakura. And uh, I, I'm hoping to showcase this uh, in a LA show soon. But, um, and and, and I, that day I was at the beach, you know, thinking about my, both of my parents, right? And I don't think I told this story to many people, but I it had just rained. And um, so I walked out to the beach and, um, and, and my parents were divorced, so they, you know, they really didn't see each other for many, you know, over 40 years. So I, I was, I was looking out, taking notes, sketches, and so forth, and and all of a sudden I turned back to go back to the station, and there was this double rainbow, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, you know, this is this is pretty incredible to to have that experience on both sides, you know, I mean, this is the kind of experience that, right, uh, that we, we can talk about and share and, and say to each other that, you know, this mystery of creation, uh, it just, just is, you know, flooding our universe and, you know, maybe we should pay attention to it. We come to understand in those moments and, and, you know, your intuition is functioning certainly at a high degree, but we, we come to understand uh, what we, we all should have known all along is that all these things mean something, that we, we live in a universe that is pregnant with meaning. And somewhere along the line, we decided, well, you know, these things mean something and these things don't. But it's like you're back a little bit further. You were talking about, hey, wait a minute. I have all kinds of broken things around here that I've decided don't have meaning or don't aren't worth my attention. But I'm but when I'm more attentive, we realize, well, you know, this sort of meaning that exists in this creation that God has made, this meaning's coming forward to us all the time. I feel like your work, you know, exemplifies that. Just moving on, right in the richness of this theme. Um our friend Walter Hansen and I are trying to finish up editing this book that you're in. And and by the way, you let me edit your chapter. You're still speaking to me. I presume we're still friends. <laughs> I'm used to that, man. <laughs> the savage pen of the editor, right? But, um, it, you know, it's in that series of lectures at Fourth Presbyterian Church. And you spoke about uh, Mark Rothko in particular and his profound impact on you. And then um, you quote this verse, John 11:35, Jesus wept, you know, and growing up in the church, that was all part of our Bible knowledge. Well, hey, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Well, you know, John 11, 35, Jesus wept. That's what it meant to us. Yeah, that, you know, that was that was a big aha. And it didn't even occur to us to say, well, what's it there for? And what in the world does it mean? But um, you really embrace those two words deeply, deeply within yourself. And then in, in this book, you go on um, in this exegesis of this story in John 11 and 12, and uh, to talk to us about Mary and about Martha and this Lazarus kind of life. And we, I really appreciated your exegesis. It reminded me a little bit of, you know, sometimes when we uh, go look at the prodigal story more deeply and we think at first, well, it's all about the prodigal son. No, wait, there's something here about the father that's remarkable. Oh, and then there's this older brother, right? And we began to see it filled out. Now that is story or parable, but the account here is Jesus' actual account. Martha and Lazarus. So um, what is it you think about this narrative that uh, you've really embraced it and it's become so central for you? What do you, what do you think it is? Yeah. So 
past 15 years or more, every Lenten season, I've been focused on Jesus wept and uh, surrounding passages, uh, and I can't seem to get out of it. I mean, you know, this year again, I'll be doing that, and how could you not after 2020? Wow, yeah. And it seems to just grow, those two words just just seems to get so resonant and i had a conversation with our good friend stephen garber and you know he i remember him telling me at a museum uh in new york uh, when we were together and he said you know marco i i would not be a christian if it wasn't for um john 11 35 uh here here's a really deeply wrought you know philosophical mind coming to understand that that completely useless task of like because jesus is there to resurrect lazarus so there's no reason why he should stand there with mary and weep (laughs) all you have to do is take by her by you know by her hand and just drag her to (laughs) to the grave and say you know you you have a little faith you know don't you trust me you know (laughs) and here's my power you know And, and he doesn't do that he wastes time uh, you know, and uh, it, it's such a profound place in scripture where I, I think almost every work of mine, um, whether it be Illuminated Gospels or this work, you know, this book, which is really my life work, um, that's the pinhole uh, that you see through. And and it it, it just places um, that kind of gravity and focus into all these complex issues that we we deal with in theology or we deal with in creative work. Um, It just narrows it down for me so clearly. And um, it's, you know, God, Jesus would much rather waste time with us, weeping with us, (laughs) than to show his power. Um, and Mary's understanding of this intuitive understanding, I think, is is also remarkable. Um, you know, and and I talk about Martha as well. Her change, her growth as a person um, to get Mary to the uh, to 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 the rabbi, you know, and and to experience this. Uh, moment uh, where uh, to me the, just just the entire gospel comes alive in those two words I mean often Martha is kind of dismissed and yet yeah. you point out she has this larger understanding of what's actually transpiring and uh, yeah just living in the scriptures there is uh, that comes near you know near to the end of the book and so it uh, it's just a rich examination um, yeah, if you look back to every chapter, um, that that is literally the pinhole. Um, you know, that's that's how the book is structured, and I, I actually even even more of what I've written is based squarely on those 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 two words, um, and um, and that that gave me a focus right on writing this book and writing about theology or making that I I can always go back to. Giant oven thirty five, and and refocus, you know, and and then talk about these larger issues. But you know, I mean, because you you wanna you wanna ask like, what is God making? Like, God is the creator. God created the universe that 
God didn't need to create. God created out of sheer love and exuberance and joy. And what what is you know Jesus doing on the the word of God? Right, stood silent and wept. <laughs> so so it's so counterintuitive, and it's so beautiful to me.、Um, the more I think about it, the more it makes sense.、Um, and and so I I can't exactly. Tell you why it makes sense. So I, I you know, I, I keep writing about it. You know, right, right. You keep circling around and, and landing on it, and that does make sense to me, right? I mean, I mean, kind of. We get caught up in a little play of words here, but you know, it make what makes sense is the struggle to make sense of it. That, that here's something truly worth pondering, right? That yeah, why would it be Jesus would do this? And it、uh, it, it does open up mystery. It kind of leads me to another question, and、um, so I'm probably offering a perspective or an opinion here. But over the I I don't know how long we've known each other, a couple decades maybe.、Um, and of course, I know you as an arts leader and an organizer and as a, as a painter and a writer.、Um, It strikes me, though, as I read you, and I think I've probably read a fair bit of what you've written over the years.、Um, to me, you've become you become more mystical, kind of、uh, all, all the time. Um, um, and, and I wonder if you are becoming or have become kind of a Christian mystic in a way. It, and maybe it's hard for someone to say, "Yeah, like I'm a prophet," or "Yeah, I'm a Christian mystic." And yet,、um, as, as you've、uh, considered all these things more deeply, I, I, I see the circling. And sort of closing in on, the, I'll say, on the mystery and this sort of pure fascination with it. So I, I, I don't know if I'm if I'm actually asking a real question or just sort of setting you up. But、um. no, but but I, I I do think you know I I have hovered beyond the、uh, industrialized <laughs> efficiency and utilitarian pragmatism in into something that you know. Teresa Vila, or you know, these these mystics have spoken of、um, and points to.、Um, I I have always been drawn to that kind of language.、Um, that, that to me that they they、uh, fill fill the universe with wonderment and.、Um, You know they're they're not after certainty, <laughs> which, which is a which is you know something that we we we've talked about as a group. You know、uh, you know what Bruce says our lust for certainty and、um, and how damaging that is、um, in every sense every 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 sense of individual growth to community uh, growth and.、Um, And 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 yeah, personally, I I think trauma and pain does something to you,、um, to you know, forced to peer into your own heart and your own experience deeply, and and、um, yeah, I I I see such resplendent beauty in those mysteries of God,、um, and. I I paint them.、Uh, I'm trying to get to that. You know,、um, you never fully get there, as you know. But、um, you know, you're you're hoping to respond to what you see and what you experience. And the more、um, experiences like see beyond that I had、uh, of late,、um, you know, the more more I I, I feel that it's 
it's essential for a journey ahead to have writings and art that um, speak of that mystery uh, and, and, and the wonderment um, that's embedded in creation. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there are burning bushes everywhere. Calvin Silverfield said, we just stopped uh, taking our shoes off. Uh, and, and art is a, you know, discipline that allows you every day to try to tap into that and to reveal something, you know, just, just maybe slightly uh, to open that door. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, so I, 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 others have noted that. And um, at first I was like, I, I'm not quite sure what that means, but you know, I'm, I'm now like, yes, in that sense, I, I, uh, being a mystic means um, being an artist paying attention to the wonderment of the world. It's not a bad mantle to take on. I mean, and when you think about, when we think together here about communicating the gospel and the good news of the kingdom, you know, when I was young in the church and it, I suppose a teenager and had become a Christian as a child and you know, at, at first, what it seemed it seemed like the evangelism and sharing the good news was about was having the best argument and and always winning the argument. And then we come to John eleven thirty five and go, huh? Maybe that's the gospel. Oh, we just skip over it, so <laughs> we don't have to deal with it. You know, and, you know, it's not that you and I would agree. It's not that the Christian faith and tradition lacks intellectual credibility and, and, and real heft and dynamism. We, we're completely convinced of that. That's why a person like N.T. Wright speaks to you all the time, right? Because we, we, we want that. Yeah, it's time to, I think, for us to have some real fresh imagination, um, especially in this culturally fraught moment where, I mean, I can't believe it isn't obvious to everyone yet that the culture wars is a failure. It, why are folks not persuaded after watching what happened in the, the riots um, and what's happening in our own lives and the anxiety? I'm going to read something to wrap up here. Anything you want to say to close? I, well, I, I just want to say, you know, I, I'm so grateful for Tom Wright to write the forward and I was expecting a paragraph and he wrote a whole treatise. It was beautiful. Yeah, it's it's, it's worth the price of the book. And, um, you know, what he says about artists being like an emissary or, you know, spying the land um, and bringing back uh, news um, from what they see of the promised land. Um, it's such an encouragement. You know, I, I read that to many artists and, um, the, 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 you know, everybody I, I read that, the, you know, NT writes forward to weeps because they'd never been seen like that, um, you know, as an artist. Um, and and it's such an important message um, to the church as well. So I'm, 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 I'm just grateful for, um, you know, his observations and encouragement, really. I, I, I'm not a theologian, so I, you know, I, I keep emailing People like him and Adam Davis and Mirrors Awful often. <laughs> they 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 email back, you know. Just, I know. I'm always I'm always surprised when they respond. Right. I mean, and, and Tom, right? I mean, this is the Bishop of Durham, you know, writing these long emails back to my simple question, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think they see how important artists are and how important questions are, and they see their role as servants of the word. 
and 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 to me that that's an amazing incredible sign of of the hope that we have um in 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 the kingdom in in the church um and, and i think it's something to build on marco thank you so much um you and i both know if we were seated here together in madison wisconsin or in princeton this conversation could go on for another hour and then another hour after that and we would not run out of things to talk about grateful for you and your work and our friendship over the years uh, on page 50 you say the ultimate act of a kintsugi master is not to even attempt to fix the broken vessel but to behold its potential to admire its beauty and then a little bit further you say what kind of church would we become if we simply allowed broken people to gather and did not try to fix them in quotes but simply love and behold them contemplating the shapes that broken pieces can inspire. Type of bowl would their hands make a visceral communication that can be passed on for 10,000 years. You know, that's, again, at the heart of what you're trying to say to us in this fine new book, and uh, that's your body of work over many years. And so... uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, as as we go through brokenness, uh, you know, we, we just realize um how tone deaf um you know many many of the programs that that we we led in you know that these are programs that we ran yeah and 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 uh you know we're always trying to fix and get back to eat and somehow you know get back to normal and then you know i'm talking to this non-christian uh, kintsugi master <laughs> and he's like you know the best thing to do is to not fix um but just behold the fragments uh, until you see a beauty until you see a landscape until you see a river flowing through it until you understand how it broke and what what the what the ceramic pieces are telling you you know rather than you imposing something on it you have to respect the edges and brokenness and shapes and every 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 shape is unique, you know. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like <laughs> what would happen if our churches became a place where people are just safe to bring their broken shards and and it and, and you and I just as maybe as church leaders, we say, you know, wow, wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> you know, it, it's not to minimize the pain or the trauma or uh, or it's not to say that these programs are bad or, you know, we should get rid of them. They're, they're good programs. We just don't, you know, perhaps have the uh, cultural um, way, right, to to accept what is broken and not to assume that, you know, and, and some traumas so certainly we know that. Uh, uh, cannot be fixed at all. Uh, some traumas um, we have to carry on, and certainly for generations to come. How do we do that well? You know, as a church, how we do do we do that as parents, as as friends? And that that that's that's what I, you know, walked away from meeting a Kinsugi master and and learning from him what the spirit is saying you know, through these broken, broken shards. And, and so I, I hope that, um, you know, as artists, as, as leaders, as, as, as people who follow Christ, 
that we, we can become, that we can create a culture of hospitality. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Andy Johnson, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.